Well, good morning. If you do have your Bible, why don't you take it up, please? And uh, once again this morning, we're back in Hebrews and chapter 13, and just a single verse this morning. But important that we see that uh, each verse comes in the context, something I'll touch on in a few minutes again. So just that fourth verse, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Dear Father, much has been said, and, and even we've prayed this morning that your word would be fruitful. And again, just to ask, as one who has the responsibility, help me to be faithful to the scriptures, to that which you have revealed. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would be our teacher, that indeed he would do his work in conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you want to begin and introduce the uh, passage this morning, just a single verse, by referring to a book, a book that I found on, uh, on the internet, uh, just to give us an idea of what actually is going on in the world with regard to marriage. It is a book, and, and notice the topic. There's a subtle difference to a phrase that we're quite familiar with. But in this particular book, it's entitled, Until Choice Do Us Part. Now, we would be more familiar with the phrase, Until Death Do Us Part. Well, this uh, author, named Claire Virginia Eby, is offering a new version of marriage. She follows in the steps of various people, a sexologist, Havelock Ellis. Notice the different... Uh, fields of study, an anthropologist, Elsie Clues Parsons, and a feminist, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. All of these people, and she keeps in step with them, uh, said the following. They argued that spouses, husbands and wives, should be class equals joined by private affection and not public sanction. Okay, you get the difference there? That uh, is just one of the many views. This is known as a progressive view that uh, is challenging the biblical view of marriage. And if I could say right at the outset, our understanding of the biblical view of marriage is it is that of being a lifelong covenant between a natural man and a natural woman. Well, we come to a topic like this, and we're living in an age where oh, there are so many versions on offer with regard to marriage. And so I do want to ask a few questions just to help us uh, think through the issue and think, think through the topic, and especially with regard to the Scripture this morning. The first question is, does it matter to God or to us as believers or to anyone else in the world that society or individuals modify or redefine what it means to be married? Does it matter? Should we be dealing, should we be talking about this issue this morning? Another question, just from another angle, does it matter that marriage consists, uh, can consist of same-sex couples or multiple partners, as some people are suggesting? And then the third question, does it matter that any kind of behavior at all is accepted both within the marriage and outside the marriage as well? 
I believe we can answer those questions this morning, uh, looking and examining verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 13. The verse tells us very clearly of an attitude toward marriage. And I want you to hold that word attitude in your mind. I'm going to be referring to it uh, quite a lot today. And also, it speaks of conduct within the marriage. In other words, the actions, the practical actions or the lifestyle within the marriage. But this verse tells us of those two things, attitude and action, that which is pleasing to God. Why do I say that? And this is to put this verse into the context of Hebrews 13 and the book of Hebrews as a whole. Don't forget, don't forget that any and every God-pleasing aspect of your daily life as a Christian, including marriage, including marriage, spills out from a life of faith in Christ. So important that we see that. It is a faith that has been described and has been uh, expanded for us in, in 12 chapters in the book of Hebrews, already been unpacking it for us. And so marriage is just another one of those practical aspects of daily life that pleases God. So when we drive home and we focus on Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, God shows us here that our attitude toward marriage and our actions in and outside of marriage is an accurate indicator of our level of gratitude to God and our quality of worship of God with consequences. And that's what I'm going to unpack in the sermon this morning, this attitude and action, how that relates to our gratitude and our worship, our worship and consequences that follow depending on particular decisions made. Like the redeemed Hebrews back in the first century, we believers ought to show a gratitude to God, and in doing so, making every effort to please Him by honoring marriage and pursuing purity. So there's a practical Christianity this morning. And I want to read that verse again. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So firstly this morning I want you to consider your attitude toward marriage. What is your attitude toward marriage? Just to try and introduce the point, uh, a couple of maybe two, three months ago now, I was invited to lunch with a friend in Johannesburg and one of the things he did was he took me outside and he said to me, I want to show you what I've done to my vehicle. He has a family, a wife and three children, and uh, he said, I've modified my vehicle. It was one of these combis, this very nice combi, TDI, all the rest of it. The first thing he said was all the glass in the vehicle has been replaced, the windscreen, the side, and all the rest of it, all of it has been placed by three centimeters at least, I think it was, armor plate glass, saying to me that this glass is able to withstand a close range shot from an AK-47 rifle. But he said, that's not all. There's more. The paneling of the doors, lots of doors on the combi, and the frames around the doors had been padded with bulletproof layers of Kevlar. I think uh, those of you into that kind of thing know that Kevlar is the material they use in bulletproof vests. And he said, that's not all. 
He said, I've also installed a speaker system so that the driver of the vehicle can speak to anybody outside of the vehicle without having to open doors or open windows. Uh, With all of that, you can imagine what it must have cost him to have all of that done to his vehicle. So I asked him, I asked him, I said to him, Rob, why, why have you gone to all this expense and all this trouble? And his answer was along these lines. My family is my most precious possession. I will do everything I can to ensure their safety. I think that's true, isn't it, for most of us? Now, this word honor, getting back to the verse 4, this word honor can actually be translated also as precious. can be translated as highly esteemed. Marriage being precious. Marriage being highly esteemed. Marriage, marriage is valuable. That's, that's the point that we, we need to receive as we seek to understand this verse. It's a word that's used elsewhere also in the New Testament, giving us something of the ele- elevated significance of the word. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 12, Paul writing there, speaking of Christians and the work that they, uh, the good work they do, uh, liken them to precious stones as opposed to wood, hay, and straw. Peter uses the word to describe the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1 verse 19. And he goes on in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, and he speaks there of God's precious and magnificent promises. So what am I trying to say to you this morning? This passage tells us God tells us that marriage fits into the category of the precious, that which is then to be treasured, like my friend treasuring his family. Marriage ought to be therefore protected and preserved, and it it must be valued. A.W. Pink hits the nail on the head when he captures the essence of the meaning of this particular verse, and he describes the excellency of marriage. That's why I used that title today for my message, because that's the way God sees it, the way God reveals it, the excellency of marriage. And I don't know about you. I have my wallet in my pocket, and I always have a problem in the, in, in the pre-stud part, the little pouch of my wallet, I collect copper coins. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. And, 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 and so what I do from time to time is I take my wallet, and I empty that pouch, and I throw the copper coins into the drawer next to my bed. And if I were to be honest with you, if somebody came into my house and stole those copper coins, it wouldn't bother me in the least. And the point being that they are of no value. They don't have any uh, preciousness about them. But don't mess with my family because they're precious to me. And you see, marriage is like that. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And so we need to ask the question, why? Why should marriage be held in honor by all? And I have two points, and the first one is that marriage is God's design. Now, Again, I believe we need to think through the Scriptures. We need to apply our minds to what we're saying. And so in trying to make this point, I was 
stretching my mind, what is it that is in most people's minds valuable in the world that we're living in? Well, my mind went to the painting of the Mona Lisa. I think most people, even younger people, would know of Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the Mona Lisa. It is said to be priceless. So I checked up on Google. What is the value of the Mona Lisa? So putting in a price, this is what I quote now, putting a price on the masterpiece of this caliber is nearly impossible. However, in 1962, that's 60 years ago, the Mona Lisa was insured for 100 million U.S. dollars. Now put that into rands. That's a lot of money. The highest at the time. In today's money, that would be somewhere around 700 million U.S. dollars, easily making it the most expensive painting in the world. Now why am I sharing about the value of the Mona Lisa? Well, here's a question. Is there anyone here or out there in the world among us that does not think it would be sacrilege? It would be stupidity. It would be foolishness. It would be horror of horrors to tamper with, to attempt to alter this original precious masterpiece by Renaissance master Leonardo da Vinci. And he's dead and buried in dust. You agree with me? You don't tamper with this painting. Extending that argument, what then is it when people tamper with and attempt to alter what God has designed and instituted? What is that? It can be nothing less than contempt for God. If there is any kind of tempering or messing with his masterpiece of marriage. So we go back in the Bible, we see that God instituted and ordained marriage at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. Sometimes we forget this, but he did so before the fall, before sin entered the world. It was in paradise that God concluded that it was not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2 verse 18. And so therefore the argument, since marriage comes from God, since marriage is the design of God, that marriage is not some kind of social construct and developed in society, and that it was begun with the very first man and woman, it should be held in honor among all people. And we can extend and explore, and I did explore even uh, further in this argument, the excellency of marriage is not only seen by God the Father who institutes marriage at, in the Garden of Eden, but what about the Son, Jesus? Jesus performing his first miracle, the wedding, Cana of Galilee. Jesus also speaks to the issue of marriage, confronted what was loose divorce practices that had emerged in Jewish society, and he explicitly affirmed God's original intent in marriage, God's design, God's, uh, God's purpose. Uh, Matthew 19 verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus honored the institution of marriage. And we can go even further, and we see the Trinitarian interest in the value of marriage. We can add that God the Holy Spirit, he honored marriage by inspiring the Apostle Paul to write that marriage is a picture of the sacred union between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5 and Revelation 21. So that's my first uh, argument. It's an argument that the Bible presents in favor of honoring marriage. The second argument is that marriage is a unique relationship. We are relational people, and it's always interesting to look over a congregation where we have social distancing because I can immediately see who closer. Yeah, here's a family. Here's a family. Your chairs are pulled together, or your friends, and you're sitting close together. We are relational people, and, and, and that's, that's the way God has made us. We, we are made to enjoy relationships across the board. If you remember the last message from chapter 13 of Hebrews in the opening verses, it was a message that spoke to us working on relationships. Uh, let brotherly love continue, and even to strangers, and, and even to those who are neglected. So relationships, uh, these relationships function at various levels. Sometimes they are shallow and superficial, and we have many acquaintances. Sometimes they can be, on the other extreme, very deep and meaningful. I often think of the friendship between David and Jonathan. And then you, you get everything in between. But my point is this. None of those relationships reaches the depth of connectedness and intimacy as, by, as a husband and wife in marriage. It's unique. It's a relationship which stands apart from any other and every other human relationship. I must quote, of course, Arthur Pink. Uh, he puts it so well. He says, as God has knit the bones and sinews together for the strengthening of our bodies, so he ordained the joining of a man and a woman together in wedlock for the strengthening of their lives. Two is better than one. Marriage is the most momentous of all the earthly events in the life of a man and a woman. It forms a union which stands, uh, which binds them until death. Now those two arguments, a summary uh, this morning, these two reasons, since marriage is a unique relationship ordained by God, our attitude toward marriage can be nothing less than holding it as precious to protect it from any attempt to modify and, and to preserve it in our personal lives and also for generations to come. Let the marriage be held in honor by all. But God has got more to say as we move on to the next part of the verse. He goes on and he says, And let the marriage be undefiled, which leads me to my second point this morning. I want us to consider your actions in and outside of the marriage. The adjective, this is uh, the grammar here that is important for us to understand. The adjective that describes the marriage is that word undefiled. You can also use the word pure. 
Now remember, we're following the logic of the passage. We've just been speaking about attitudes of honor toward the marriage. And so therefore we can say, because God is the designer, and because of this unique depth of connectedness and this one flesh union, now here's the practical implication. Marriage is the exclusive place and opportunity for intimate sexual expression. To understand the nature of the purity in the marriage, I want us to think about that this morning. We need look no further than the relationship that the Lord Jesus Christ has with the church. You want to know what purity is like, what it should look like? We look at Jesus. And I've just jotted some thoughts down off the top of my head. I'm sure you can add to my list. But remember that marriage illustrates the relationship between Christ and the church. So if I want to know what purity looks like in the marriage, well, let me look at the groom and the way that he relates to his bride. Well, a couple of pointers over here. The love of Jesus for the church. It's sacrificial. It's compassionate. It's patient. It's kind. It's the 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love that we read of in that letter. The loyalty and faithfulness. Now, these are all issues that we grapple with in the context of marriage. The loyalty and faithfulness Jesus has for the church is undivided and steadfast and enduring. What about the sensitivity? It's understanding for us in the church. It's comprehensive. I'll sum it up with this statement. The church, which is the bride of Christ, is the exclusive object of his redeeming grace. Now that, that should communicate something to us about the purity. And so we who are married and those who are still to be married have a perfect model to emulate. Which then makes me think and ask, what then is the problem? Why, why is there impurity? Why, why, why does the marriage get contaminated? How does it get contaminated? contaminated? Marriage is contaminated when men and women focus their, atten their attention on themselves. And God has moved to the periphery. God's design is then neglected. You see, if there's a low view of God, or if there's no view of God, then I'm the most important being in the world, and I govern life, and I make decisions that serve me. God's design is neglected or ignored, resulting in self-indulgent conduct inside and outside of the marriage and I want to extend that in application and really present a challenge to you this morning. Self-indulgence and worshiping God in reverence and awe cannot and do not coexist. Where the focus is on self-satisfaction, which is nothing other than lust, <coughs> worship can be nothing more than lip service. Translating that into the practical challenges that we face in contaminating marriage, if self-satisfaction is the governing and regulating principle, now God is outside of the picture, 
remaining a virgin until marriage is swept under the carpet. Marrying an unbeliever will be acceptable. Unfaithfulness in extramarital relationships will be everyday practice. Why not do it? Because it's what I want. It's what I feel. It's what I desire. Sexual intimacy in same-sex relationships will be justified. Abandoning the marriage for any or no reason will be legitimate. Navigating the world wide web in search of erotic sites will be common day, common practice. And climbing on the self identity bandwagon will be commonplace. The point the point that we need to receive and be challenged on this morning is that self indulgence of the sinful nature will lead to these and other actions of contact and be in behavior that contaminates the purity of the marriage. If we take the Word of God seriously and we don't get involved in exegetical gymnastics, then we can only conclude that there are certain lifestyles that defile the gift of marriage. But once again, I want to add that God has more to say. We're not done with the verse. The remaining part of verse 4, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. My third point, attitudes and actions lead to consequences. Attitudes that you have and I have toward marriage and actions that we perform and do in and outside of marriage will lead down two different pathways. In fact, my, my, it's like this. Opposite, opposite pathways. I want to speak to both of them. The one is the pathway of blessing. I want to tell you, not just from the scriptures, but from personal experience. 40 years of marriage this year, God willing. Blessing will permeate the marriage relationship of men and women who pursue a lifestyle of pleasing God. Let me give you some examples. You will enjoy a unique and exclusive intimate life with each other. No one else ever involved. Absolutely unique. You will experience growing respect and trust for each other. And just by the way, as, a, as, a, as someone who does marriage counseling from time to time, one of the biggest problems I find in couples that are married is trust for, and respect for each other. If you pursue God's design of marriage, I want to tell you, and I've had this, a soulmate, a best friend, a confidant, a companion, and even a critic. You will provide a stable and secure and supportive and safe environment for your children. It's the best thing. It's the best gift that any husband and wife can give to their children. You will add in the further uh, sphere of influence to a healthy society and community. And the last point, which perhaps should have been my first point, delighting in conforming to the will and way of God. It's a wonderful thing to know when God has been on it. That's the pathway of blessing. Much more could be said about that, but our passage, in fact, focuses on my second uh, 
points the pathway of pain. Where men and women disregard God and His holy ways, His displeasure will become evident at some point in time. And I want to emphasize the at some point in time. The warning in our text raises the alarm regarding judgment from God for those who persist in pursuing a self-indulgent lifestyle that contaminates the gift of marriage. And this is, I'm simply the deliverer of the message. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This is not the only passage. There are many passages. Sexual immorality is frequently singled out in the Bible as the kind of conduct that will receive judgment from God. Not exclusively, because all sin will receive judgment from God. But the focus often, uh, sexual immorality is lifted up, as in this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do not be deceived. 2021, very easily to be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a scary statement. Anyone and everyone who persists in any kind of unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Away from me, you evil doers. In the final judgment, they will face condemnation from God. Now we need to think and expand our thoughts. In our present world, the sexual revolution, which has been underway since probably the 1960s, uh, spilling over from the U.S. And if you didn't know that June was Pride Month all over the world, uh, sexual revolution and gay pride uh, movement, they may think in the present world, they may even believe that they are victorious, that they are eradicating the biblical view of marriage. And looking on from the outside, it seems like they are succeeding in, ch in changing attitudes and actions away from God's intention and design in marriage. Well, I want to add, elaborate, reinforce this clear warning among us today. Victory will be short-lived, and it's because God says so. On that day when history, as we know it, comes to an end, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not only on that day, Scripture also warns us that men and women who obstinately defy God. Now, what I mean by that is people who dig their heels in and they defy God, they refuse to believe God's revelation, they seek to, 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 to bring uh, contamination into the particular issue today, which is marriage, you know what God does? He removes His hand of restraining grace. So Romans chapter 1, verse 24 says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So what this verse tells us is that there comes a point in a defiant individual's life or a decadent society's existence when God gives them up to push the self-destruct button. Just hands off. 
this is what you want, do it. You will suffer the consequences. Hollywood is not winning the morality war. God is simply leaving them to destroy themselves. There's one final attitude toward marriage and the actions in and outside of marriage that can produce the kind of consequence that I believe we need, and it's my conclusion. I've called it the step of repentance. Immediately after the warning, that horrible warning, that terrible warning in 1 Corinthians against God's judgment on sexual immorality and other sinful behavior, he adds these words. And such were some of you. And I want to pause there because I want to be very clear today. I'm not speaking from a position, and we as a church don't hold the position that any one of us comes with clean hands to God. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. That's why we proclaim the gospel. And that's what this message in 1 Corinthians 6 is all about, is that's what you were. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. And so the point, the encouraging point in the light of quite a sobering message this morning, neither homosexuality nor adultery nor fornication or any kind of sexual perversion or any other acts of sinful nature are beyond God's forgiveness. Jesus made this point. He pointed out that for all sinners, every one of us, all sinners, to avoid perishing, there's a need for us to repent. Listen to what Jesus says. Luke chapter 13. No, I tell you. You see, they were pointing fingers. No, I tell you. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or as John puts it in his first letter in verse 9, first chapter, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what's my conclusion this morning? If you've bought into the lie, those questions are asked at the beginning. If you've bought into the lie that sin doesn't matter, or that marriage can be tampered with and modified to suit self-indulgent lusts of men and women. Passage this morning urges you, God is urging you, stop in your tracks. You're going down a pathway of inevitable pain. Stop in your tracks. Take a step of repentance. It's a simple act. Repentance, simple act of acknowledging your sin, not justifying it, acknowledging it, admitting to it, and turning from it, and placing your trust in Jesus, who is able to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. And so as a church, and even as individuals, let us heed the words of Peter as he preached on the crowds or to the crowds on the day of Pentecost. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit.
He's the one that will enable you and me, does enable us to pursue purity and righteousness. Lord, I do pray that your words would find root in each of our lives as we go about day-to-day life, confronted with a barrage of versions, alternative and different versions of marriage. Help us, Lord, to know that which is pleasing to you. Give us, Lord, the strength and ability by your Spirit to live out a life that is pleasing to you. Help us to resist temptation. Help us, Lord, to be amongst those who draw close to God as you even draw close to us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.